Season three of We Are All Americans was recorded in the summer of 2020 in the midst of the global COVID-19 pandemic and the reinvigorated Black Lives Matter movement after the murders of Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and George Floyd. Welcome to We Are All Americans, conversations about how family stories are passed down from generation to generation and what it means to be American in the context of multiculturalism, immigration, military service, Black Lives Matter, white privilege, and indigeneity. I'm your host, Michelle Jacquis, and I'm here on Zoom with Beverly Natus. I'm in Los Angeles, and, and Beverly, where are you located right now? Tacoma, Washington. Yeah, so thank you for joining me for this conversation. Well, I'll start a little bit by just telling you sort of how the project got started. Some of this you may remember, because I, um, I think you saw me talk about this at, at the College Art Association um, panel almost now, I guess a year and a half ago. I started doing this because I inherited some letters that my great-grandfather wrote during World War I to my great-grandmother, mm -hmm. and they were new immigrants. Um, he's from Russia, and she is from Austria, although my family has sort of various ideas about where she really is from. <laughs> um, they, they, you know, it's a part of the world where the borders kept changing, um, and we have different records, but I do have my great-grandfather's naturalization paper, so that's how I know his, his says Russia. He got his citizenship after serving in the U.S. military, so originally mm -hmm. I thought I was going to record conversations with people who similarly got their citizenship after serving in the military, but I had some, the very first conversation I had was supposed to be with, at, we, I did a project with Side Street Projects in Pasadena, and we thought we were going to connect with veterans groups and immigrants groups and have conversations between the two. And the only people who showed up to the workshop were just like a family of regulars who go to side street projects all the time. And they <laughs> said, the mom said, okay, what's happening today? And I explained the project. And I said to her, um, you know, we're recording oral histories about immigrant stories, but I also know that not, you know, get that not everybody came here willingly and she said she looked at me and nodded she's an african-american woman and she nodded and she said okay yeah we'll do this and and we ended up talking a lot about what difficult parts of our family history and our the history of our country do we tell our kids and at what age do we tell them mm -hmm. and um that conversation shifted the project completely where i realized this was bigger than just citizenship issues and immigration mm -hmm. issues so what made you decide that you wanted to participate and have this conversation? Well, it's a, a topic that I deal with a lot in my own work. Um, back in 1992, when people were doing projects about the counter quincentennial, hmm. and I was living back then in uh, Venice, California, um, and teaching at Cal State Long Beach. And I had a lot of students who were organizing an exhibition at Angel's Gate in mm -hmm. San Pedro. Mm -hmm. And um, they said, we really want you to be in this exhibition. And I said, oh, uh, well, that's, I feel honored. I said, I, I thought this exhibition was just for uh, artists of color. And they looked at me like I was crazy. And, um, and they said, Beverly, uh, do you know who you are? And I 
looked at them again and I said, well, you know, I'm of Jewish heritage, um, but people always ask me, what are you and have since I was a little kid? Um, because I've never passed as white and yet I don't feel entitled to be POC. I have too much oh. privilege. Oh. And they said, Beverly, this is how you're seen in the street. Oh. And oh. so I ended up making work about what it meant to be raised to be white and never truly assimilating as part of that exhibition. And in my husband's case, he was born to two parents who had uh, Saligi Nation, which is uh, the Eastern band of Cherokee, but he looks whiter than snow. So when we would go to powwows together, people would always come to me and say, what tribe are you? And I'd say the lost one. And, <laughs> and you want to talk to him, he's Saligi. And they would look at his nose and they would, they would look him over. And then they'd say, oh, Saligi nose. So, <laughs> and he would always feel like, oh good, I exist. Because he didn't like being a, what was perceived as a wannabe. Indian yeah, yeah and and so the work in that show was about those very interesting complicated senses of identity and what does it mean to be otherized and what does it mean to not feel entitled to be mm -hmm. POC um, and how do those intersections influence our activism our ability to be co-conspirators, our ability to be allies. What, what do those things mean? Are your ancestors Ashkenazi? Um, on both sides, yeah. Mm -hmm. But the migration of the Ashkenazi is something that needs to be looked at carefully because in my family, even though the most recent ancestors came from Romania and from the Russian-Polish pale thing mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, and Lithuania um, it's there were people who were very dark in that group and people who were redheads and blondes yeah because the gene pool came from uh, the Middle East North Africa and Southern Europe mm -hmm. and so when people say well if you're an Ashkenazi Jew and you're this dark, aren't you really Sephardic? And I say, yeah, probably, but it goes back. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was just talking with a friend about this, like as Jews, we have a very complicated relationship to whiteness. Mm -hmm. my, my, so on my side, my mother's side is our Ashkenazi Jews. My father's side are French Canadian Catholics, but mm -hmm. I wasn't raised by that side of the family and I don't really know them, but my sister and I look like them. My mom has ringlet curls, hair, much more darker olive skin than I have. Everybody on her side has the stereotypical Jewish nose. Mm -hmm. um, and her hair was almost like, almost black. Mm -hmm. And my sister and I have this straight blonde hair that not as many people on my mom's side have, unless it was dyed. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, you know, my grandmother would tell us stories about a cousin uh, who survived the Holocaust because she was hidden by nuns in a convent. And my sister and I would joke and be like, well, we would have survived too, because look how Aryan we look. We've mm -hmm. got the blonde straight hair and the blue eyes. And it was much lighter when we were younger. And it's this, but at the same time, um, 
you ask an, uh, a, a neo-Nazi or a white nationalist, and we don't count as white, mm -hmm. even mm -hmm. though at the same, you know, like I understand, like I, I'm perceived always as white and was raised to believe that I am and I feel that I am, but at the same time, there's a, there's one, to me, there's like an idea of whiteness as almost like whiteness is this like heteronormative male Christian white mm -hmm. that I don't relate to and I don't and I understand like your husband feeling like I don't want to associate or be mistaken for that mm -hmm. and it's a it's complicated it is it is complicated and you know I have gotten flack from different places but I also um feel very at home in BIPOC groups. And for the most part, I'm totally accepted within BIPOC groups. Yeah. I've been doing mm -hmm. um, meditation in Oakland and meditation in London and meditation in Seattle during the pandemic with all these BIPOC groups. And nobody ever questions, if I've chosen to be there, I must be one of them. Mm. Um, and there are a lot of biracial people who are white passing who have similar kinds of conflicts you know yeah. are people gonna let me exist in this space because i'm white passing yeah. what do you what do you think it means to be american oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, such a complicated mess <laughs> mm -hmm. I, I um I, I did a series at one point um that was based on uh, uh phrases that have been said to me when I've traveled and often people will say you don't look American mm. and they don't realize what they're saying is you don't look white yeah um, but um, or you don't look like the movie stars I see in American um, so I have never really felt a strong identity as an American mm. even though I mm -hmm. lived here not all my life. I lived in Canada for graduate school and I've traveled, you know, off and on when I could afford it, but, um, or when I was invited recently, I was in China, um, mm -hmm. and, um, just missed the pandemic bullet there by two oh, weeks. Whoa. <laughs> um, I was a guest artist at the Sichuan Fine Art Institute. They invited me to talk about eco art and my work and, help them create projects. So it was fascinating to be in contrast there as the American. Mm -hmm. I don't feel like an American except when I leave. <laughs> when I'm here, I don't feel like it. When I see people put yeah. American flags up, I'm like, oh my God, the fascists are coming. <laughs> I feel the same. I've never been inclined to do that. And it's mostly because of my history with my dad being blacklisted. I didn't know that he was blacklisted until I was 32. Mm. It was a family secret. Wow. And I was the only child that he told. My brothers who were much older than I did not know until the day he died when I told them. And they didn't believe me because I grew up being gaslit all the time. Mm. So I had to you know, lean over to my mother and say, would you tell them that dad was in fact a card carrying communist and that he was blacklisted? She said, well, they don't really need to know. It's, you know, and I said, I know you have PTSD, 
but it's part of the history that needs to be told. Mm-hmm. Because yeah, so it's hard to feel like you want to be a part of the place that tried to cast off your family. That's right. That's the that that is the core wound mm-hmm. that makes it very difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, it's a really core wound. <laughs> that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and yet at the same time, you know, my parents always had exchange students from other countries stay with us. They were really into, you know, fostering cross-cultural kinds of conversations. And whether it was intentional or not, I became someone who felt we don't need to have nation states. We don't need to have borders. I'm, I think the first um, political leader who I read who talked about that was Rosa Luxemburg. Mm. She believed that we should have, um, you know, a global society and um, be doing different kinds of global exchanges. And I would modify that by saying, yes, we need that, but we also need to decolonize (laughs) so that people's uh, traditions don't get erased so that we maintain the heritage seeds in our seed bank. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I have two last questions for you, unless there's anything else you want to talk about. Um, Mm -hmm. What are you most fearful about and what are you most hopeful about? Um, The fear comes from the rise of the right wing and the rise of the anti-science and the Fox News watching hordes who sadly, um, you know, have their own core wounds um, that have to do with being probably bullied for not being smart or bullied for being poor or bullied for being something, um, which made them uh, vulnerable to the ideologies of Christian evangelical thinking or Nazi ideology or mm-hmm. proud boys. Yeah. That, that group scares the shit out of me. And I share that completely. Like mm-hmm. people think I, I, I when, depends on who I'm talking to about this. Some people see this as like really wacky conspiracy theory, but my biggest fear I think is that the evangelicals are going to really take over the government and then ship all the Jews to Israel to start the second coming. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And, I don't, and that's like, you know, in my dark times of watching too much Handmaiden's Tale. But <laughs> yeah, I, I, I had to really cut back on dystopic <laughs> um, anything, but um, <clears throat> I used to thrive on reading dystopic speculative fiction of all kinds, but Atwood it's is- getting too real. No, we live in dystopia now. We do. Yeah, yeah. And so, um, uh, and we have, and, and black and brown people have been living in dystopia for hundreds and hundreds of years. So it's not, um, it is what it is. Um, uh, but, you know, I keep thinking that we need to build bridges. There's got to be a way, you know, Resmaan Menachem's book, my grandmother's hands talks about healing 
the trauma in our bodies, the racialized trauma in our bodies. And when I was teaching at UW Tacoma, I had students who came from, you know, fairly limited backgrounds and poor public educations. And they had the vulnerabilities um, in many cases to become victims of white ideology or white mm -hmm. power ideology. But um, because our school was a really, is a good school, there are people really teaching critical thinking from multiple perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, we were able to inoculate most of the students, not all of them, but most of them. And I feel that art could be an inoculation if we could figure out how to um, create safe spaces where people build bridges through art making and storytelling. It's possible yeah. that people who are so damaged can come across. So that's my fear. My hope is based on the idea that storytelling, uh, dialogue, and uh, miracles, like the miracles of the current uprisings happening everywhere, will keep happening. Mm. You know, we're in a climate emergency as well as, and the racial justice movement is just one part of the ecocide that we're living in now. And it's possible that miracles will keep happening. Mm -hmm. And um, so that gives me hope. And I'm so astonished by some of the things I'm seeing on the web now, like movement generations course correction series that they just did is phenomenal. And it was inspired by Adrian Marie Brown and Grace Lee Boggs and all these, and Octavia Butler, people mm -hmm. who said we need to imagine the future we want if we want yeah. to live into it so there's yeah, a lot, lot of good things happening i keep having conversations with colleagues about you know not so much recently but i feel like in the first month or so of us all working and teaching remotely mm. and social distancing and that we can't go back to status quo mm -hmm. it has to be we have to rethink the way we've been living. Mm -hmm. And and then I think you're right in with this recent resurgence of social uprising that needs, it becomes even more imperative mm -hmm. to not yep. go back to status quo. Yep. Yeah. Well, Beverly, this has been a really great conversation. I've you're so good. enjoyed getting to know you more. I'm gonna yeah. turn the camera on so we can see each other. Mm -hmm. um, thank you. For participating in this with me. You're so welcome. It, I, I appreciate that you're doing this project.